I have a guest with me today who has just so much experience uh, in, in law enforcement, in mentoring, in dealing with issues that are really critical uh, to uh, his state and to our country today. And we're going to talk about uh, many of those issues today. Dion Joseph, welcome to the program. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So, Dion, you're a, a police officer in uh, LA County in California, and uh, you've uh, you've been on the job uh, over two decades, and you have dealt with um, just some extraordinary things. And you you work quite a bit in an area that everyone's heard about, Skid Row, but I I don't think a lot of people know much about Skid Row, maybe beyond what they've seen in the movies and things like that. Can you talk about the modern Skid Row that you deal with on a daily basis? A lot of misconceptions about Skid Row, but I'm just gonna give you the reality of it. Skid Row is a recovery zone and it has 108 programs designed to help people struggling with homelessness, dealing with a, a myriad of issues from mental illness, uh, to drug addiction, alcohol addiction, chronic homelessness, domestic violence, you name it. These programs are there and they're great programs, help us to trip and fall away. The problem is because of its centralization or, or this tactic of centralization of services and also that area's close proximity to other cities like LA, South LA, Compton, Watts, Long Beach, Pasadena, and all these other places, a lot of times you end up attracting two groups of people. The first group are people who desperately need help who are disenfranchised and then you have the people who follow them from those adjoining communities to prey on them and that makes it very difficult for them to get their lives back from the endless spiral of addiction because how do you get clean when you're in a drug program but the drug dealer is not only outside of the drug program or rehabilitative housing project uh, they're also allowed inside uh, and it makes it very difficult uh, for uh, them to gain recovery uh, it's made up of four groups of people. And I'll try to make this quick because I love humanizing the homeless because they get demonized a lot. Uh, the first group is good people. There are wonderful people in Skid Row. That's why I've been there for 24 years, okay? Uh, there are good people who do bad things. Those are your drug addicts. Look, uh, when they're not uh, binging, you find out they're educated, they're people of faith, they're wonderful human beings who weren't born on Skid Row, they ended up there. Uh, and, but when they're on drugs, they, there's this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde effect that really is uh, horrible to watch. Then you have uh, people who've made mistakes but have redemptive qualities. These are your ex-convicts. When they have an environment conducive to change, they end up making better decisions for themselves. But when things are off the chain, as we say, you know, you got to make a choice, uh, either go broke or make money with all the hustlers out here. And a lot of them choose the latter. The fourth individual kind of individual we have in that group are uh, basically career criminals who descend upon places like Skid Row because it's centralized, it has drug programs to prey on the people because they know they have addiction. So there's plenty of customers there for them to keep on an endless spiral of addiction. Now, let me tell you what's different about Skid Row juxtaposed to any other place in the United States of America. Uh, because of its close proximity, these 50 blocks are really tight. There tends to be this constant and frequent cross-contamination of those four groups. And here's the reality of this is what it looks like. This is what you're not gonna see on CNN. The good people are forced to look the other way when bad things happen because they don't wanna be a victim of crime. This is real. The good people who do bad things, your drug addicts stay on the bad side longer because once again, the temptation to stay, so, to, to stay clean is far too great. The temptation to fail is far too great. For the third group, the people who've made mistakes, but they can be rehabilitated, they have a choice to make. Look, I'm only getting $221 a month. 
just getting out of prison. This is not enough. And I'm seeing a drug dealer on the corner making a thousand dollars a day. What choice do I have? I'm going to go find quote unquote work. And then the last group, the career criminals pull all the strings and even link up with activists to tie our hands and pull all the strings that make us look like the bad guy for trying to stop these, these horrible crimes, the rapes, the murders by any legal means necessary. That's the reality of Skid Row. And uh, people need to know that. And I, I wish the media would be more honest about it. Well, and now, you know, the, the police are on a daily basis so villainized that mm -hmm. here you and your colleagues are trying to make that difference. But we've got to, under, I think people need to understand that just exactly what you just said. Yes, there are criminals that prey on the homeless and the police are the only people that are going to get between the criminals and the homeless who are trying to get their lives together. And yet, there, like you said, there are activists who who want to keep the police from even getting involved, right? Oh, absolutely. They're using a very familiar tactic uh, that, unfortunately, when they choose their villain, every movement needs a villain. Right now, Tad, we're it. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, our uh, police detractors are using that tactic of one of the most evil men in the 20th century to really guide people to the thought that police are your enemy. And I'm not saying we're perfect. Police officers are human beings. But the tactic they're using is this. Yeah, tell a lie one time, no one's going to believe you. You tell that lie 1,000 times, and everyone's going to believe you. And that's the tactic he used uh, to spurn his angst against the Jewish people, and he ended up murdering 6 million Jews and then 10, 10 million others. Now, I'm not saying they, they're murderers at all, but I'm saying it's the same tactic, and people are falling for it because we live in what I call a microwave society. Uh, people want the information quick. They don't care if it's true. They don't care if it's right. They know how to tap into people's emotions and passions. Uh, I also call it headline thinkers. A lot of people don't even read the article. They look at the headline. They say, uh, well, white cop shoots black kid, and somewhere down in the headline, there's an AK-47, but that's in a small print. But people see the headline and they lose their minds. And then by the time the facts come out, their city burned down. And now they're cops, they're, the police officers, their hands are tied and they cannot protect them anymore. And then the cycle continues. So my fear right now is that across this country, big cities across this country, we're going back to the 80s and 90s. And I worked in the 90s. I lived through the 80s. And I say I lived through because I'm a young, a relatively young African-American male. That was my era. And I remember guys pulling up on me with guns and, and young black males being shot for no reason and the police feeling helpless at the time because they didn't have the resources. And I feel like we're going back to that based on a false narrative that if, that the police are the main problem and it, it's just a lie. The police officers are just human beings. We're human beings dealing with human beings and on both sides there can be unpredictabilities, but I can promise the American public that the vast majority of police officers from all walks of life, whether they're white, black, Hispanic, gay, straight, Christian, Muslim, atheist, they're just decent people trying to do a very tough job. And sometimes in split second decisions, we have human moments that doesn't excuse bad behavior because there are human moments. And then there are things that 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 disappoint me as an officer. Uh, you know, I can't, I, I can never uh, get my mind past what happened in, uh, um, in Minneapolis with uh, the Derek Chauvin uh, situation. I, I can never get past what happened with Rodney King. Those are clear evils and wrongs. But a lot of these controversial shootings, if you really put them in the context and look at all the facts and the totality of the circumstances, I understand what those officers were up against. And we need the general public. We need to be able to have a voice again to be able to educate the general public to beat back this dangerous propaganda that's not just hurting us. I always tell people, if you tie my hands, you know, 
you're hurting my feelings because I see myself like Superman. What was Superman's uh, greatest weakness? It wasn't kryptonite. It was when you hurt someone he cares about. And I care about the people I serve. And when you tie my hands with kryptonite, the people I serve, the people of Skid Row, African-American, Hispanic, all people, it doesn't matter what color they are, these people get victim, victimized by crime with this propaganda and it's not helping, it's actually making things worse. And uh, the proof is in the pudding, but nobody cares to hear that and that's a shame. That's what the National Police Association is trying to do. We're trying to help citizens understand how they can support American law enforcement. Like you said, there's 850,000 of us out here, cops trying to do our jobs. And now we are being so vilified and, and, and vilifying us. It doesn't just hurt us. It hurts the citizens that need law enforcement. Absolutely. It's very interesting what you said uh, about police officers, what they want to do when they get the badge. My story is unique. I didn't even want to be a police officer. Because being a young African-American male, I had those same indoctrination. You got to understand, I came up prior to the Rodney King era, and every song I listened to was F the Police. And I loved those songs. They were great songs in my mind. You know, <laughs> I was a young man, very rebellious in, to some degree. Uh, you know, all my friends were saying the police were this, the police were that. And, and then I joined an activist group, uh, which started out to be a positive thing about finding out about African culture and history. And then it turned when we got a new leader into uh, the white man's the devil, uh, you know, uh, the black people are super oppressed and all this stuff like that. And I ended up developing a, a hatred and disdain for law enforcement. And then the Rodney King incident uh, hit and they kept playing that over and over again. You had the pundits, you had the money grabbing attorneys. Everybody, Hollywood movies, they shape their movies to show cops as the villains. And that, that impacted me, that there was an indoctrination there. And then I ended up joining the police force. I didn't want to, I had no choice. I was out of work and I met my beautiful wife back then and I wanted to support her. So I said, I'm gonna do this police thing for about three years and then I'm gonna quit. But when I got on, I discovered that 90% of everything said about police officers were completely false. I've worked with officers who were black, white, Hispanic, Asian. Uh, as a matter of fact, the police officer that I patterned my career after uh, that helped shape how I policed in Skid Row, where I've garnered so much love and respect, was a six foot four, blonde haired, blue eyed white man named Bill Snowden. And he policed the black community where he arrested about 2,300 people over 1,400, 14, 14 years. And I said, why is this, am I driving through the community with this man? And people are shouting his name from the rooftops. Hey, Snow, I love you, man. Hey, I'm praying for your family. I couldn't believe this. I was like, is this cop so corrupt that these people are so afraid that they just show him love? Like what's going on? And he pulled me over after about two months of working with him. And he says, Dion, uh, here's what you need to know. This community knows there's a high level of crime. They understand we have a job to do. Just remember that when we do our job, you make sure, damn sure, that you treat them like human beings when you do that. And when he said that, the only thing I could say was, yes, sir. And I modeled that, I patterned that in my whole career. And now it's my name in Skid Row being yelled from rooftops and homeless people coming up and giving me a hug with the Corona going around. I was like, hey, it's the Rona, but you know, I still hug him anyway, you know. <laughs> it's hard not to, you know, because I don't like rejecting them. But- uh, Everybody needs you know, a hug. But we people need to realize that the vast majority of police officers are decent human beings. Look, I'm no different than you. I didn't stop being black. I, I love it. I don't want to be anything else. Uh, the only difference between you and I is that I was brave enough to see the other side. 
And if we can get people to do that by joining a Citizens Academy instead of watching cable news or instead of going to social media for half the story, go to a Citizens Academy and, and get to know police officers and maybe it'll change your perspective to a degree. And even if you don't agree, you'll end up with a more educated, well-rounded opinion. And I can respect that. Now you were mentored by you know people on the job, and uh, now you are a mentor. Talk about the importance of mentoring young people, not just to become police officers or to be good police officers, but just in our communities in general, especially young men. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. That's why I created a program in Skid Row in 2006 called the Just Like You program. Once I built those bridges with the community, a shelter that housed women and children blessed me with the opportunity to mentor young men, I particularly targeted young men, but I also mentored young women. And I called it the Just Like You program. A lot of these kids were disenfranchised. Of course, they were fed the same things I was fed about police officers. They were homeless. They were going through a lot. And when I met them the first time, I walked away crying, thinking, oh, my God, look how horrible this is. But then, you know, I took a page from my dad and said, don't feel sorry for them, help them. So what I did was I created the program. And what I wanted to find was mentors who, not people who had silver spoons in their mouth, but people who went through the similar circumstances as these children. And I would share a message of love for about 20 minutes. And then I would bring these individuals who used to be homeless in foster care, who were abused, who went on to become owners of companies and janitor businesses and things like that, hotel managers, and share their stories with how they became successful with these kids. And then it morphed. It just grew over the course of about five or six years. And uh, then when crime started going back up, it, it kind of subsided. But yeah, once things go back down, I'm going to fight to get back in there because if I don't get in there and tell those kids I love them, who, what, what's the other side going to tell them about me, that I hate them? And that's not true. So to law enforcement agencies across the uh, country, don't give up. I know it's hard, but get back in there and get in your communities. Another thing I did was I created a program called Ladies Night. In Skid Row, uh, there were women there who were being sexually abused on a, at a high rate. Uh, Skid Row is 40% uh, of the population is made up of women. And two-thirds of those women have been victims of sexual assault twice in the Skid Row area which is horrific, which is why I get so mad at advocates who want to protect the right for people to amass tents and things on the sidewalk, because you can't say you care about the safety of women at the same time, be okay with the environment that puts them in danger. And this is what I always have been trying to convey to political leaders and even civic leaders is please listen to the boots on the ground. I'm telling you the truth. I don't have a political dog in the fight. I'm not left or right. I'm in the middle. Okay. But anyway, I created ladies night because so many women were being victimized. And during ladies night, uh, I had, um, I talked to them about sexual assault. I talked to them about domestic violence and I teach them self-defense to let them know that we don't care if you're on probation, parole, uh, a prostitute or on a pole or undocumented. You can come to us and we will not re-victimize you for coming forward because that's what the streets tell them, their johns tell them, gang members tell them. And also, unfortunately, what some advocates tell them, do not go to the police if you've been sexually assaulted because you have a jaywalking warrant. That is a lie. And we need to be the ones telling them that. And here's the wonderful thing about Ladies Night. Uh, when, at the first Ladies Night, uh, the bridges I built in the community were so strong, you know, I didn't realize how big it was. But I only expected about 15 women to show up. Guess how many people showed up to Ladies Night? 175 women from Skid Row came to the first 
And they got to hear that I cared about them, I loved them, and that they're just as important as someone living in the Palisades. And from that, a couple of years later, two of the women, three of the women that attended that seminar were victims of a horrible taxicab serial rapist. And they, because of Ladies' Night, came forward and they wouldn't even testify unless I showed up. <laughs> so they had to call me from home. <laughs> they said, we're not going on that stand if Deion Joseph is here. They wanted a police officer to stand by with them and be their support system. And I did that. And we put that man away, hopefully, for the rest of his life. Uh, so we have to create those inroads. We can't retreat. I know there's a tendency to retreat right now. And that's understandable. That's human. But we have to get back in there. We may not on a micro level, macro level, be able to change the narrative. That's impossible when you have the media working together with the activists and now you have politicians working with all. It's almost this horrible synergy working against us. But on a micro level, community by community, if we really open ourselves up and, and, and be uh, intentional about being proactive uh, with uh, engaging the community and dispelling these myths, one city at a time, one block at a time, we can change this. Dan. A lot of parents, especially African-American parents, are fearful to send their kids out with, you know, with their brand new driver's license or you know, go to the movies or whatever, um, because if they get pulled over, they're being told, you know, the parents, there's a great fear that the police are gonna stop you and kill your kid. But yet we've got to teach young drivers, young people to, cooperate with the police, come, you know, we call it comply now, complain later. Do you have any recommendations for parents who are so fearful about their child getting into an altercation with law enforcement and getting shot or tased or whatever? What recommendations do you have? Well, oh, first of all, I, I, based on what's being told and fed to them, I completely understand. If I wasn't a police officer and I was watching the news and didn't have that bird's eye view about what, what police officers uh, really do and what they're like, and the data, because the data says you have a greater chance of being struck by lightning than killed by a cop. You know, look, we conduct hundreds of thousands of traffic stops across this country of people of all walks of life. And for the most part, nobody gets killed. It's just those anomalies that the human nature, things happen and bad things can happen, okay? Because we're human and the people we stop are human. But we have to stop telling our parents to parents to, we have to tell parents to stop instilling fear into the kids because when you instill fear, fear causes mistakes. You know, if I sat up every day and said, son, the police are coming after you, they're gonna kill you every time you step outside the door. The next time my son contacts a police officer, that fear is gonna cause him to do what? Panic, fight. yeah, and why? Fight, you know, so we have to get back to really uh, parents taking that bold step to say, okay, instead of putting fear, let's go meet with police officers. Let's bring our kids to a citizen's academy so uh, we can learn about what their rights are, what our rights are, what the police rights are, what the police can and can't do. Look, the government, we can we can help fix this. We can, through education, we can reduce a lot of this, of this violence that's happening in the streets by just bringing tort law back into school. And making people understand uh, people versus mems, I might be, I might be uh, wrong, but I think it's people versus mems. Uh, a police officer, when he pulls you over legally for a traffic violation, he has the absolute right to pull you, ask you to step, make, have you step out of the vehicle for any reason. That is a Supreme Court ruling. But you have these social media media police experts who are misleading people on uh, misleading parents and children on purpose 
which then creates a car. Well, you ain't got to get out the car for cop asking you to do that. No, in fact, don't do that. Drive two more blocks down the street to a place you feel safe. What do you think that's going to do for a cop who's driving? That's odd. That's out of the norm. That's going to make my, as a cop, my hair stand on, is this guy sending me to a place where he's going to set me up? So telling these lies and these misconceptions to these children, to young people, is actually what's creating the tension uh, that can possibly, potentially, not all the time, but to potentially lead to a violent competition that nobody wants. Because I promise you, I've been doing police work for 25 years. I've never heard one cop wake up in the morning and say, let me go see how many unarmed black people we can kill. Today. I've never heard that. Let me see how un unarmed handicapped people or autistic people we can kill today. And then on the other side, of course, training for law enforcement. And that's happening. Uh, my department, unfortunately, I can't mention it, is leading the way as far as training with, with uh, dealing with mental illness and autism. And no one gives us credit for that. You know, we're leading the way. But once again, like I said, the media, social media, advocates, they want one narrative until they get exactly what they want, which unfortunately is anarchy. And, um, and if we don't wake up, if our politicians don't start waking up, uh, in the next five years, uh, America's gonna be a tough place to live. Dan, you have so much incredible experience and insight. Where can people go to uh, bring you in to do some public speaking? Where can they follow you on social media so that they can learn more about what you do? Well, you can find me at my website at www.deonjoseph, D-E-O-N-J-O-S-E-P-H.org. And you could book me. I'll come to wherever you are. You know, I just love speaking. I love sharing my story. Uh, once again, I'm not left or right, so I'm not coming there to insult your political view. I am a centrist. I'm just going to tell you what I see and let you judge for yourself, which is what I think the media should do, but unfortunately. Also, you can get me on uh, uh, Facebook, my officer, Dion Joseph Page, and uh, Twitter at OFCR Dion Joseph. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I'd uh, love to come out and talk to you guys. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. This year, over 50,000 law enforcement officers have been assaulted while on duty. A vast number of these attacks were filmed and uploaded to social media in the pursuit of likes and attention. What they want to do is film you instead of like, what can I do to help this officer? Together, we can change this disturbing trend. If that individual would have hit the right spot, you know, it, it could have been it for me. You know, last time I would have saw my wife, my kids. I'm Mike Solon. Law enforcement officers need your support. If you see an officer under attack, then follow these simple steps in order to help. One, call 911 and give the officer's exact location. Two, ask the officer if you can assist. If the officer accepts, then do whatever you can do to safely help. Three, if the officer declines, then start filming and be a good witness. It's time to stop filming and start helping.